Guido Debray. If you remember several months ago, we went over a story on John Payton, who was a missionary to the New Hebrides, which is modern-day Vanuatu. And uh, I trust that that was very, very comforting uh, for us to hear his story. And there are many more stories of faithful people throughout uh, church history. And we can be greatly encouraged from their walk and find endurance for ours. So that is my hope today. Uh, The courage in the face of outrageous persecution and extreme difficulty that we see in the life of Guido de Bray is a wonderful reminder for us that to follow Christ is to follow the path of suffering. To follow Christ is to follow the path of suffering. But what I believe we learn from Guido de Bray is that the suffering on that path, and rather what we learn from the Apostle Paul, the suffering on that path is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed to us. And when we have this heavenly hope, we can endure suffering. And I think we just see that so wonderfully in the life of Guido de Bray. So Guido is a lesser known reformer, but I would say his impact is arguably only slightly less significant than that of Martin Luther and John Calvin. He's like, uh, there's a few forgotten reformers. Um, It's kind of like in um, generations of athletes or um, movie stars or politicians. Um, There are some people who you think they're not really worthy of that. It's just that there wasn't really anyone else better at that time. So they kind of stand out as prominent. And then there are times where unfortunately you have a whole bunch of really talented people who are very prominent and then the people who are actually quite good get forgotten about. I think Guido is one of these guys who is actually worthy of a lot of attention, but he sort of gets absorbed in uh, under uh, John Calvin and Martin Luther. Uh, His dominant work was the Belgic Confession, uh, which is one of the three main confessions used in Reformed churches worldwide alongside the Westminster and the Canons of Dort. So the Belgic Confession. Uh, He was born in Mons, Belgium in 1522. And to give a bit of context, this is a few years after Martin Luther had nailed the 95 Theses in 1517, which was one of other events, but one of the significant events that kickstarted the Reformation that basically allows us to hold to the views that we do now without fear of death from the Catholic Church at the time. Uh, So Luther has nailed his 95 theses. Um, Debris is born just one year after the famous Diet of Worms, where Luther had to stand before the council and he was asked to recant, but he didn't. So the Reformation is picking up speed by the time Debray is a teenager. He comes from an average family, nothing particularly special. His father is a stained glass artist and Debray would have gone on to follow the same steps. Uh, But during his teenage years, something happened that changed the trajectory of his course dramatically. And that was quite simply that he got his hands on a Bible. That doesn't sound all that uh, astounding to us. But remember, at this time in the 16th century, Bibles are illegal. You can't have a Bible. So the, the things that we hold... Uh, probably less uh, of a treasure than we ought to. Um, It's very easy for us to have a Bible. At that time in the 16th century, if you had a translated Bible, you were likely going to die if if you were found out. 
this has been the case for centuries that the Roman Catholic Church at the time uh, basically wanted to control the teaching and so the laity uh, were not to have scriptures uh, because they thought they had to rightly be taught from the officials of the church. Uh, but in the 16th century, this is especially punished uh, because the reforming views of the likes of Luther, William Tyndale, Zwingli are picking up speed and so they're trying to sort of uh, basically hunker down and control these pesky reformers that are bringing all these wonderful truths that they don't want to come out. So basically, if you had your hand on a translated Bible, uh, you were probably going to be killed or at least tortured in some way. Now, a bit more context to understand the persecution of those who hold the views that we do today. Uh, From 1519 to 1556, Charles V is reigning and he really doesn't like Protestant reformers. He's the one who is over the Diet of Worms, where he's telling Luther to stop preaching your nonsense, come and stay with the Catholic Church. He declares Luther a heretic. Um, A bit of a context for the persecution in 1536, so Debris would be about 14 years old, William Tyndale is strangled and then burned at the stake for holding the views that we do now, for perpetuating justification by faith alone, for trying to get the Bible into the hands of the laity. He is strangled and then burned at the stake in a gruesome death. By the mid-1550s, this persecution only increases because a dude named Philip II takes over and he really hates Protestants. Uh, He marries Mary, who's Bloody Mary, another Uh, queen who really hates Protestants, hence her name Bloody Mary. So Philip uh, II makes it very clear again in the 1550s that owning a Bible is not going to be tolerated or speaking about the Reformation will get you the death penalty. And so this is the context for Debray. Now, if we go back to Debray's early life, by the grace of God, he's converted in his early 20s which means that Debray now, now that he is converted, he is considered a heretic. So he has to leave the continent of Europe and he goes to the UK, which it's a little bit safer at that time to be a Protestant. Um, This is in the 1540s. But Debray has a heart to pastor and preach among people just like his own back in Belgium. So in 1552, he begins pastoring a church, which is called the Church of the Rose, It's a wonderful name. We're um, still hoping to change our name from City Reach South Taiwanong to something else. It'd be nice if we had a name like Church of the Rose or they had really nice names there. He'll pastor a church called Church of the Palm. Sounds very um, appealing. Uh, So Debray is pastoring Church of the Rose in Lille in Belgium. He pastors this this church for a few years um, and he's already developed a, a decent level of prominence Um, So he has to go under this pseudonym of Jerome. It's a little bit um, like a movie where he actually has to have a different name and he sort of goes in disguise to a lot of places because of the increasing persecution. Uh, But after a while, the persecution is too much. He has to leave Lille. Um, And what a wonderful act of God's providence. Because he has to leave in the 1550s, he actually meets John Calvin and Theodore Beza and gets to study under them, which is a wonderful opportunity. So he spends three years mastering Greek and Hebrew. 
And in 1559, he meets and marries Catherine Ramon. And together they have several children. They're married for seven years. Uh, and as we'll see, there's a beautiful letter that I've got in the, uh, the page there, which he writes as he's, as he's about to die to his wife. Um, and they just have, it's a wonderful picture and insight into their marriage. Uh, so he's married to Catherine. Soon after marriage, they together move back to Belgium, where he becomes uh, the pastor of a church in Dornick, which is called Church of the Palm. Another lovely name. And in Dornick, they are under fierce persecution and the church has to remain on underground. And then whether or not this was the right thing to do, there are a few people in the church at that time. The church was underground and there are a few people that felt like they needed to be more active in their faith. So whether or not it was the right thing to do, um, there was a gentleman who led a bunch of people who thought that they should actually go in public and the way that they demonstrated their protest was to sing psalms in the street. Um, I was listening to a talk on Debrain that the, the um, speaker was saying how many of our congregations even sing the psalms in general, let alone going out in public where you realize that singing these psalms will probably uh, get you killed. So this church uh, heads out onto the streets. They sing the psalms together in defiance. And because of this, uh, it gains enough static that the Roman Catholic Church sends officials into the town to go into the city to investigate and suppress these Protestant views. So after some time, this Church of the Palm that Debris was pastoring, which was able to fly under the radar for a while, is now out in the open and Debray has to leave again uh, with his family now. At this point, they have a few children. Uh, but before he leaves, he's able to finish this document called the Belgic Confession, which is a wonderful document. It's just a confession of the new Reformed faith. It's a defense of the Reformed faith. It's specifically to distance themselves from the radical reformers, who was this group of people holding to uh, new Protestant views, but doing it in a really outrageous way. A lot of resistance to the government uh, that really made it difficult for people who hold to the genuine faith to be seen as credible. So he writes the Belgic Confession. And it's really funny to hear the story because the way he gets it into the hands of Philip is as he's leaving, he literally goes past Dornick Castle and throws it over the um, castle wall. Just a package. Here you go. Here's the Belgic Confession. Uh, you're welcome. And in the uh, introduction to the letter, uh, we see Debray's boldness where he actually says to Philip, if you try to suppress us by killing, for everyone who dies, 100 more will rise in his place. If you will not forsake your hardness and your murder, then we appeal to God to give us grace patiently to endure for the glory of his name and heaven and earth will bear witness that you put us unjustly to death. That's a wonderful picture of boldness and, and a God-glorifying way to protest against a wicked and corrupt ruler. Uh, the Belgic Confession is one of the most significant pieces for Debray and really for the history of the church. Um, the confession is very clear, as I said, to distance the reform faith from these radical reformers who was a, a group of people who took the views, but then basically started really like burning uh, cathedrals and ca causing a lot of vandalism and chaos. And the confession says, we detest the Anabaptists, 
That's the radical reformers. We detest the Anabaptists and other seditious people. And in general, all those who reject the higher powers and magistrates and would subvert justice, introduce community of goods and confound that decency and good order which God has established among men. So he's saying we want good order in society. If you're thinking that we're here to basically light cathedrals on fire and vandalize places and just sort of create anarchy, that's not us. We, we are a uh, obedient people. So Guido de Bray did not believe following Jesus meant anarchy. Now, wherever possible, there was a desire to submit to the governing authorities because they believed that God had instituted them. So de Bray um, would say that wherever governments uh, lead corruptly, it shouldn't immediately lead us to rebel, but rather in wise and sensitive ways. We are actually called to call the government to account because they have been instituted by God. And to lead in a way that honors God. So the confession says, and I believe you've got this quote here, it is the bounden duty of everyone of whatever state, quality or condition he may be to subject himself to the magistrates. That's just the word for the, the government. To pay tribute, to show due honor and respect to them and to obey them in all things which are not repugnant to the word of God. To supplicate for them in their prayers that God may rule and guide them in all their ways and that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and gravity. And uh, where the government continues in unjust persecution of Protestants, the confession says, and this is really uh, bold, the confession says, we would rather offer our backs to stripes, that is be whipped, our tongues to knives, our mouths to gags, and our bodies to fire, than deny the truths set forth in this confession. That's a, a wonderful statement. We would rather be killed then deny any of these truths. So you can do as you please, but we will never deny awfully similar themes that we've seen in Daniel 3 and 6. There is a willingness to suffer and die for the cause of Christ. And the undergirding doctrine under the Belgic Confession for all this is really that there is a sovereign God whom we profess allegiance to, who is so good who is so outrageously good that even when we find ourselves facing the sword, we could never deny our master. Never. He is too good to deny. Not only that God is good, but that his good and perfect will cannot be thwarted. So I've got a quote there on, on uh, the, what the confession says about God's providence. It says, We believe that the same good God, after he had created all things, did not forsake them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that he rules and governs them according to his holy will, so that nothing happens in this world without his, appointed, without his appointment. Nevertheless, God neither is the author of nor can be charged with the sins which are committed. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he orders and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner, even then when devils and wicked men act unjustly. The, the state of society in no way threatens God's sovereign hand of providence. Now, that's the confession. I want to finish just by looking briefly at the letter to his wife. This is, I think, the second most significant um, writing from Debray. And this comes as he's about to be executed. So to give context, after Guido and his family flee from Dornick, after he tosses the confession over the castle walls, he then spends several years ministering throughout France. Uh, he has brief periods back in Belgium, 
But by 1567, he's captured by uh, King Philip's men and he's sentenced to death. And he spends several weeks in prison and initially his first uh, stint in prison, uh, he's allowed to have visitors. And there's just a a wonderful story that I thought I'd mention where a princess uh, comes and he had quite a reputation. So people were coming, but most people were coming to actually mock him. So this princess comes and she says, my God, Mr. Debris, I don't see how you can eat, drink or sleep that way. I think I would die of fear if I were in your place. And he says back to this princess, my lady, the good cause for which I suffer and the good conscience God has given me make my bread sweeter and my sleep sounder than those of my persecutors. It is guilt that makes a chain heavy. Innocence makes my chains light. I glory in them as my badges of honor. That's a wonderful, wonderful statement. After this initial stay in prison, he was transferred to another prison. He's thrown into a dungeon for the last nine weeks of his life. Now, this dungeon is called the Black Hole. It's a tiny little cube. Uh, It's dark, it's cold, it's rat infested. The only light in the cell comes from a little hole where human feces would come down. It's a disgusting condition. He spent the last nine weeks of his life there. And despite, despite these conditions, Debris manages to write a 230-page tract on, on a treatise on the Lord's Supper and letters to his companions, primarily this wonderful letter to his wife. So I'm just going to read through it as we finish. I'm going to skip over. I've got the whole letter there, but I'm going to skip over some bits. Uh, he says, Catherine Ramon. And just remember the context as he's writing this. He's in this dungeon. He knows he's about to die. He spent wonderful years, seven wonderful years with his wife, but he knows he's never going to see her again. And so he's writing this letter to comfort her. Catherine Ramon, my dear and beloved wife and sister in our Lord Jesus Christ, your anguish and sadness disturbs my joy and the happiness of my heart a little. So I am writing this for both our consolations and especially yours, since you have always loved me with an ardent affection. And because it pleases the Lord to separate us from each other, I feel your sorrow over this separation more keenly than mine. I pray you not to be troubled too much over this for fear of offending God. You knew when you married me that you were taking a mortal husband who was uncertain of life. And yet it has pleased God to permit us to live together for seven years, giving us five children. If the Lord had wished us to live together longer, he would have made a way. But it did not please him to do so, and may his will be done. Now remember that I did not fall into the hands of my enemies by mere chance, but through the providence of God who controls and governs all things, the least as well as the greatest. So he speaks more about God's providence there. And I'll just skip down uh, to the third from last paragraph. He says, Since such things have happened... My dear sister and faithful wife, I implore you to find comfort from the Lord in your affliction and to place your troubles with him. He is the husband of believing widows and the father of poor orphans. He will never leave you. Of that I can assure you. Conduct yourself as a Christian woman, faithful in the fear of God, as you always have been, honoring by your good life and conversation the doctrine of the Son of God, which your husband has preached. It's a wonderful thing that even as he's about to die, he is pointing her to the husband who will never leave her nor forsake her. 
As you have always loved me with great affection, I pray that you will continue this love toward our little children, instructing them in the knowledge of the true God and of his son, Jesus Christ. Be their father and their mother and take care that they use honestly the little that God has given you. If God does you the favor to permit you to live in widowhood with our children after my death, that will be well. If you cannot and the means are lacking, then go to some good man, faithful and fearing God. Farewell, Catherine, my dearly beloved. I pray, my God, that he will comfort you and give you contentment in his goodwill. I hope that God has given me the grace to write for your benefit in such a way that you may be consoled in this poor world. That's a, a wonderfully touching letter as he is about to be executed. His last communication is really exhorting his wife to say, stay faithful. If you can raise these children in widowhood, praise God. But if you can't, find a God-fearing man who will support you and raise these children in the ways of the Lord. That's an utterly selfless thing for him to say. Uh, to really uphold his wife's spiritual temperature in that moment as he is in that uh, black hole. Soon after this, uh, Guido is publicly hanged. His body is uh, left there for some time. And then uh, finally, after a day, he is buried in a shallow grave uh, from all that we have. His body is dug up by wild animals. Now, it would be easy to look at the suffering and especially the horrible and undignified conditions that he spent his last several weeks and months in and then a um, humiliating death as well and think, you know, what a waste. Imagine what this guy could have done. Uh, but to think that would be to completely misunderstand the doctrine of God's sovereign providence that debris held so tightly to. Whatever comes to pass is the goodwill of God. So Debray actually, last quote, wrote a letter while in the black hole dungeon. And he said, I am practicing now what I've preached to others. And I must confess that when I preached, I would speak about the things I am actually experiencing as a blind man speaks of color. Since I was taken prisoner, I have profited more and learned more than during all the rest of my life. I am in a very good school. The Holy Spirit inspires me continually and teaches me how to use the weapons in this combat. He's saying in these last nine weeks in the black hole, in the dungeon, I've learned more than all before. The Holy Spirit is a wonderful teacher. How can you compare several weeks or even several years of suffering in light of the eternity? that we are all promised that debris entered into the moment he breathed his last breath, hung there in humiliating fashion. All of a sudden, eternity, pure joy, no more suffering in the presence of our Savior. How can the sufferings, how can the degrading and humiliating situations that he was in be compared to what he now has and what we long for? We have to understand uh, this doctrine of sovereign providence. And I encourage you to read through the Belgic Confession uh, that speaks so highly of this, this hope in this coming eternal reward to know that whatever comes to pass is the good will of God. His will cannot be thwarted. That is the fuel that we need. So let's spend some time praying uh, now just in response to that. 
And um, if uh, you want, you can move your chairs. We'll kind of stay as, as a group together and um, just spend some time in open prayer, just um, really thanking the Lord for his sovereign will, uh, asking for the same um, fuel that must have been in debris to, uh, to write uh, that letter to his wife in the face of death, to give thanks that actually uh, we can take God at his word when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, when he promises that he will be with us, and especially in times of suffering. We have a suffering servant that has walked that path for us, so we know that he is able to empathize and sustain us and uphold us in every single way. Uh, so let's um, spend some time just in thanksgiving and asking the Lord for this, maybe um, 15, 20 minutes or so, and then we'll finish with um, singing. So I might start us and then um, just pray as you're led, and then I'll close us in prayer. Father, thank you for this wonderful story of Guido de Bray, and there are many others uh, that we could read throughout the history of your church. Thank you that you have always had faithful men and women who will not bow the knee to the kingdom of darkness, but who will stay bold. And surely the only way that this could possibly be is where your spirit is working within these people. And that is the only hope for us. And Lord, as we think about the possibility of persecution here, grant us the same boldness. Grant us the same trust, the same profound trust in your providence, in your good and perfect will. Grant us that same warmth that can make, uh, that can result in such a, a nearness in really horrible situations like being in a tiny dungeon. And yet he felt so near to you. Grant us that same nearness, Lord. And just in this time of prayer, we pray that you would lead our, our prayers so that we would be edified and that you would ultimately be glorified as you knit our hearts together in this. We pray in Jesus' name.